Okay, folks, I am going to uh, dispel any rumors that might get started here. Uh, yesterday morning, uh, we had uh, training for our, uh, our guardians, who are basically our safety team, and also for the, the balance of our staff. Uh, Patrick made it mandatory that uh, we had to take CPR class yesterday. And in addition to that, we had to take this training called Stop the Bleeding. And uh, that was a tough class for me. Uh, it was all about, uh, you know, people hemorrhaging in your worship room, getting shot, or their legs getting cut off because something fell on them or whatever, and, and how to stop the bleeding. And uh, everyone in the room uh, enjoyed watching me uh, turn as white as a ghost, uh, I had to put my head between my legs a couple times so that when the pictures uh, showed up on the screen, uh, I had to get drinks of water and things like that. So if anybody uh, starts this rumor that Pastor Mike is a wimp, it would be absolutely true. Uh, it was very difficult. I, I, I know how to put on a tourniquet. I know how to stop the bleeding. I just don't know how to stay uh, awake while it's happening, okay? Okay. <laughs> So if something bad happens in here, uh, you're going to want to turn to like uh, Pastor James or, or Patrick or, or one of our guardians who uh, they did really well through the whole thing, and you won't want to be looking for me uh, to help you out. And I just realized, Cap, uh, could I have my sermon, please? <laughs> that would be very helpful. Thank you so much. So uh, anyhow... Uh, just know that, that I'm a wimp when it comes uh, to blood. That does not work very good for me. Uh, so, hey, we are going to spend some uh, time this morning uh, talking about what it looks like to be completely committed to doing the will of God. And uh, we are going to do this by examining a biblical account, the biblical account of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane just subsequent to his arrest by the Jewish authorities. But before we uh, actually dive into the text, I, I want to take you uh, back uh, to the date of November 6, 1956, to a, a small red brick church uh, in the town of Montgomery, Alabama, on the corner of Dexter Avenue and Decatur Street. It's just this uh, small church probably held maybe 200, 250 people or so. Uh, not unlike a, a lot of the neighborhood churches that are scattered throughout the city of Harrisburg. And on that uh, Tuesday evening, uh, the entire congregation had gathered together uh, to hear their 27-year-old pastor, a man by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., preach a, a sermon entitled, Paul's Letter to the American Church. And uh, it's quite an amazing message. Uh, it's a, an amazing act of creative writing, actually, because what Dr. King did was, uh, you know, throughout the Bible, you have uh, Paul's letter to uh, the church in Ephesus, or Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, or Paul's letter to the church in, in Galatia. And so what Dr. King did was he uh, used his creative skills to uh, figure out, you know, try to figure out what would the Apostle Paul want to say to the American church. And it is a, a, quite a riveting sermon. It is as applicable uh, today as it was some 60 years ago. 
And as he brought the message to a close, this is what Dr. King said. He said, I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life, America. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and to avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. And I'm wondering, as Christian men and women living in the 21st century, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that the the chief goal in life is not to be happy? Do we really believe that, that the end of life is not to achieve pleasure and not to avoid pain? Do we believe that? And do we really believe that the end of life is to do the will of God Come what may. Those words completely contrary to the words of our culture. Because the words of our culture tell us what? That you know, the goal of life is to be happy. The goal of life is to be comfortable. The goal of life is to avoid pain. But the fact of the matter is when we choose to do God's will and make that the goal of our life, It always comes with struggles and difficulty. And how we answer that question, what what we we look at for the end of life, uh, reveals the extent to which we understand who Jesus was and what he taught and how he lived and what he expects from us. You see, Jesus, he exuded a, a life committed to following his Father's will regardless of the cost. And nowhere is this more apparent than his prayer and subsequent actions that occur in the Garden of Gethsemane some 12 hours before he was to be crucified. And as we examine Jesus' prayer and what he does in in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to learn several characteristics that, that define a person who is fully committed to doing God's will. So uh, in order to get started, if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, find your way to Luke 22, verses 39 to 53. If you don't have a Bible, as always, there's Bibles uh, on the tables around the room. They're also on the, on the back counters there. We would love for you to, to have one of those. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 53. And uh, if you are able to stand, if you would do so, please, in honor of God's word. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, one of the, the central focuses of Jesus' life was uh, to do the will of his Father in heaven, regardless of the consequences. And in John chapter 3, Jesus says these words, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus, he was, he was laser-focused on obeying his Father in heaven. He didn't concern himself with the things that concern us. He wasn't concerned about what other people thought about him. He wasn't concerned about what other people wanted him to do. He wasn't concerned about what other people said about him. Nor did he concern himself with seeking his own comfort or seeking his own fame or seeking his own security. And so as he uh, continued to journey towards the, the crucifixion, uh, crucifixion which would ultimately uh, begin with him being arrested outside the city walls, uh, he does so in a manner, uh, a very intentional manner, not wavering to the left or the right. And as we examine these events that lead up to this arrest, we're going to see these, these traits or these marks of, 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 of what it looks like to be a Christian who is really committed to the will of God. And the first one we find is in verse 39 of Luke 22. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Now, I want to draw our attention to those words, as was his custom. Now, for the ordinary person, the fact that Jesus knew full well that Judas had left the upper room and was on his way to betray him, to get people to come and take Jesus' life. That very fact makes the idea that Jesus would do what was his custom absolutely crazy. I mean, why would anybody do that? Apparently, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he would make it a habit uh, to gather his disciples together uh, in the evening, and they would go outside the, the city walls of Jerusalem on the, on the east side of the city, and they would make their way to this 
urban garden that was located at the foot of the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in, in the midst of the trees and in the midst of the darkness and probably the crickets cricketing, if there's crickets that can cricket in the Middle East, uh, he would pray with his disciples to his Father in heaven. And of course, uh, Judas, who was one of the twelve, he was very familiar with this, this custom of Jesus, that Jesus would do this over and over again. And uh, he knew where Jesus would be. Now, I've watched enough espionage movies and I've read enough spy novels to know that when your life is in danger, when someone is gunning for you, you don't do what you normally do. You mix up your routine. You don't travel to work by the same route anytime. You don't leave the house at the same time. You don't even drive the same car. You can't shop in the same grocery store. You can't do any of those things because this person, they're, they're after you and you don't want them to be able to, to know what you're going to be doing. And that's why I'm constantly always changing my routines, you know, trying to protect myself. Now, either Jesus wasn't watching the movies that I watch or reading the novels that I read, and as a result, he didn't know that he needed to mix up his routine, or more than likely, he had no intention of mixing up his routine because he knew that his arrest and subsequent trial and ultimate crucifixion was part of God's will for his life. You see, Jesus had no intention whatsoever to, to uh, avoid Judas's betrayal. And the reason for this is was because he was committed to submitting himself to the will of God. And that's the very first characteristic that we see, that those who, who uh, want to stay in the middle of the will of God, you've you got to be committed to the will of God, to allowing that to, to play out in your life. And this is clearly seen through, throughout the pages of the Bible, but perhaps one of the, the best places that it's found is uh, in the book of Daniel. Many of you remember the, the, the uh, Old Testament prophet Daniel. He He's a faithful Jewish man living some 600 years uh, before the birth of Christ. And uh, he's living during a time where uh, the Jewish people were, had been taken into captivity. And, and here he finds himself in, in, in the court of, of King Darius, the, the, the Persian king, uh, living in the, the midst of what is now uh, modern-day Iraq. And, and while he's in captivity, King Darius, he's not a stupid guy, and, and he recognizes that, that, that Daniel is, is a pretty good administrator. And so he decides that he's going to, to utilize his services, and he begins to, to utilize Daniel, and, and eventually he positions Daniel to be Numero uno in his, in his kingdom. Daniel's the, the main guy. He's the number one guy. Here is this Jewish guy living in the midst of this foreign land, and he's basically calling all the shots for King Darius. Now, this does not go over well with the balance of, of the people who are in King Darius's court, all the other guys who think they should have gotten the promotion. 
And so they, they go about trying to figure out how in the world are we going to get rid of Daniel? And Daniel is this faithful man. He wakes up every morning. He, he pulls the, the, the curtains back. He goes up to his upper room. He, he looks out towards Jerusalem where he wants to be, and he prays to God. And everybody knows that he does this because it's a very public thing. And so they, uh, these guys who are opposed to him come up with this great idea. They, they say to King Darius, hey, you know, probably be a really good idea to make a, uh, make a law that says that, that uh, if anybody prays to any other god or any other person other than you, King Darius, that they should be thrown into the lion's den. And uh, King Darius just, okay, sounds like a great idea to me, and uh, implements this, this law. Well, lo and behold, the law makes it to, to Daniel's desk, and it's already passed, and Daniel says to himself, okay, well, you know, if that's the law, that's the law, but I know what God's will is for my life. And so he goes home, and uh, he goes up to the upper room, and he opens up the curtains and opens up the windows, and he looks towards where Jerusalem would be, and he begins to pray because he knew that was God's will. And by doing so, Daniel ultimately finds himself as the... Uh, the special entree on the evening dinner meal for the, the lions that Darius kept. And submitting to God's will had the potential to cost Daniel his life. Yet rather than saving his life, he continues to be faithful to God. And in the end, he's tossed into the lion's den. And God miraculously shuts the lion's mouth and Daniel lives to pray another day. See, brothers and sisters, following God's will for your life always requires unwavering commitment. There will be so many things that want to throw you off track. So many. And sometimes uh, your worst enemy will be you. Sometimes you're, you're going to be like, <laughs> lion's den? I don't think so. But we are called to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Now, the second characteristic of those who follow God's will is that they are invariably focused not on themselves, but instead on others. Look at verse 40 of Luke 22. And when Jesus came to the place, he said to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, now think about this for a moment. You're Jesus. You, you, you know that, that, that your death is right around the corner, and it's not going to be something as easy as lay your head down and we're going to chop your head off. It's going to be protracted agony. Now, what's the typical person do when, when they know that, that, that something difficult is going to happen in their life? Typically, you gather all your friends together and you say, pray for me. Please pray for me. But what does Jesus do here? Jesus instead says to his disciples, you need to pray for yourself, that you may not fall into temptation. Isn't that just like the heart of Jesus? Je Jesus knows how bad things are going to be for him, but he also knows this. He knows that, that, that in another 12, 13, 14 hours, the, the, the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders of the day, their focus is going to be off Jesus. Because Jesus is going to be dead. 
And their focus now is going to be on this little band of followers. And the temptation of this band of followers is going to be to to reject Jesus because they're going to just get done seeing what happens to their leader. And he says to his disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. You see, those who are committed to following God's will, they ultimately care more about others than they do about themselves. And ladies and gentlemen, this plays out all the time in the life of this church family. And and I see it most clearly when someone is facing death. Typically, death from cancer, because that's the one thing that happens that, that you sometimes have an idea that, you know, when your end period is going to be. And there is, a, there is a, a lady right now in the midst of our church family who lives just five blocks to the west of here, who is facing death from cancer, and she's been facing it for the last eight months. The doctor said she should have died back in February. And she continues to hold on. And every time that I go visit her, or every time that Pastor Ben goes visit her, or every time Bongo goes visit her, or Miss Eleanor goes visit her, or my mom and dad go to visit her, or, or someone else from our church family goes to visit her, you know what her concern is for? It's not for herself. It's for her husband and her kids and her grandkids. You see, this godly woman, she actually gets it. She she recognizes that, that, that following God's will for her life demands that, that she not have to worry about her end. But rather, she concerns herself with her family. Because those who desire to follow God's will will always be marked by concern for others. Number three, those who submit to God's will are honest with God. Look at verses 41 to 44. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, before we we dive into this second point, or third point, which is is this whole idea about being honest with God, I want you to consider something uh, that, that I've never really noticed in this passage until this past week. You know, some of you are, are, are probably far brighter than I am. Maybe you guys have, have picked up on this. Maybe you, you heard it from another message someplace. But, but there, there's something that, that happens here that I never, ever really considered. And, and what that is, is I had to ask myself, how did Luke, the writer of this gospel, know what Jesus prayed in the garden? How did he know that that an angel showed up? 
How, how did he get these details? Because my natural assumption was, when, when, when he go, here's how he, he goes to the garden, and there are other accounts in the other Gospels that fill in some of the blanks here. But, but, but Jesus takes the remaining 11 disciples, they, they, they go to the edge of, of the, the Garden of Gethsemane, to the edge of the park. And, and he, he looks at eight of the disciples and he says, I want you to stay here, stay put. And then uh, it says that he goes a, a, throw, a, a stone's throw away. You know, how, how far can you throw a stone? Maybe 50 feet, 60 feet, something like that, maybe a little farther than that. And, and so what he does is he takes the remaining three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and, and he goes a stone's throw away from, from the entrance of uh, the garden where the other guys are, and he goes into the depths of the garden. And then it says that, that Jesus goes a little bit further away from these guys, probably, you know, only 10 feet away. And my natural assumption has always been, these dudes fall right asleep. That's what I always figured. I mean, it's, it's like midnight by now, everyone's stressed out, they've had meals, all this kind of stuff. Jesus is talking about him dying. And my general assumption was that these guys, they, they just fell asleep. But the fact of the matter is these guys probably didn't fall asleep or we would never know what Jesus actually prayed. And so these guys are hearing Jesus pray to his Father in heaven. And, 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 and they, are, they are perhaps even able to see the, the blood coming out of his pores. And, and they can hear him crying in agony to his father and and you know this angel shows up i mean when an angel shows up it's not like a little thing and, and they 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 would have seen the angel show up and then what happens the dudes fall asleep how do you sleep after all of that how is that possible yet these guys fall asleep and that's what makes this thing so much more tragic. Jesus is already going through agony. And yet his friends, in his time of greatest need, they're sleeping. When I think about that, I think of how alone Jesus must have felt. He's on his own. Everyone is going to ultimately abandon him. He knows that. And his three closest friends, they can't even stay awake when he asks them to be awake. And Jesus knows that he is going to take upon himself your sin and mine. And the one who was perfect now is going to become stained with sin. And that, that relationship that he had with, with God the Father from before the beginning of time is going to be tore apart. Because God the Father can't dwell in the midst of sin. And so here he is. He is so incredibly alone. And, and some of you have probably felt like that. 
Some of you know what it's like to be alone. To have no one to turn to. You can't can't talk to mom or dad, your brothers or sisters. You you know, yeah, maybe they're there in body. But you are just alone. Guys, that's a terrible place to be. It's a horrific place to be. And that's where Jesus is. And even though he is all alone, he he looks to God. And he's honest with him. And this is the very first thing that he prays. He says, Father, is there any other way? I know that this has to happen. But does it really have to go down like this? Is this really what has to happen? Does my skin have to get torn from my flesh? Do I have to be spat upon and whipped and rejected? Do I have to be stripped naked and carry a cross through town? Do I really have to be, be, be laid on this cross and have spikes driven through my, my arms and my, my ankles? Does that really, is that the way it is? Is there another way to pull this off? He doesn't hold anything back. And you know what is beautiful about that? It tells me that I can be honest with God. It tells me that that I don't have to come to God with, with pretenses. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to say, God, I don't get this. I don't get what you're doing. Is there another way? The baby that you you love is on the brink of death. It's okay to say to God, God, are you sure this is what you want to do? When your marriage is imploding, it's okay to say, God, I don't get this. When you've got this job and and suddenly you get a phone call in in the middle of of the weekend and it's it's your, your closest friend at work. And he says, hey, there's no place for you here at this play at work anymore. It's okay to say, God, I don't get it. I mean, if Jesus did that, certainly we can do that. It's okay to be honest with God. I mean, so many people will go out. There's, there's, there's people that will say, you know, you just don't have enough faith. Yeah, you're darn tuned. I don't have enough faith. God, I just don't get this. But Jesus doesn't let his fear eclipse his obedience. And that brings us to the next attribute of those who embrace God's will for their life. They are steadfast in the face of fear. Jesus continues to pray, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He comes to God honestly, but in the end of the day, he says, you know what, God? 
I'm human. You're God. I'm imperfect. You're perfect. I'm finite. You're infinite. I know a little bit. You know everything. I can be in one place at the time. You can be everywhere. I'm only so powerful. You are all powerful. And you know what, God? What do you got planned for me? I'll do it. I'll just do it. Regardless of what the consequences are. And some of those consequences can be so incredibly hard. But God is so incredibly faithful. So Jesus, he, he prays uh, this prayer. He says, not my will, but your will be done. And then he goes out and uh, he finds his disciples sleeping. And he's like, oh my goodness, what the heck's going on here? Well, he probably didn't say that, but you know, it's happening. And then in the midst of all of that, all of a sudden there's a commotion. And here's Judas in the garden with a, a bunch of people, with a mob. You, you think of, of mobs from the, the late 1800s, you know, going after a runaway slave or something like that, torches, pitchforks. That's what's going on. And uh, Judas draws near to, to Jesus and he's going to kiss him, and, and Jesus says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And, uh, and then, all of a sudden, the disciples, they get this. And they're like, whoa, this is really going down right now. And so they decide, maybe there's something we can do to prevent this from happening. And if you remember from last week, uh, Jesus told them, hey, you know, make sure that you take a, 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 if you got a sack, knapsack, take it with you. If you got cash, take it with you. And uh, if you got a, a, a weapon, take it with you. And those guys said, hey, we got two swords here. And Jesus says, that's enough. Well, it turns out, as you, as you read the other gospel accounts of, of what's going on here, uh, one of the guys who, who's got a, a, got a sword, it's, it's more like a, a kind of a dagger kind of thing. And it's in his cloak is Peter. Peter is like the worst guy in the world that you should give an arms to, all right? I mean, the dude is so completely impulsive. You, you don't want to trust him with those things. And uh, before Jesus can, can say anything, because, you know, if you, you look here in, in the text, it says this in, in verse 49, And when those who were around him saw what would follow... They said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? So they asked the question. Jesus doesn't even get the words out of his mouth. And, and Peter's like, sword, strike, whoa. Ear is gone from the, from the chief priest's servant. And as I think about this, this is what Jesus then says, no more of this. And this is what comes to my mind. As, as we're following God's will for our life, there are going to be people in our life who are, who are well-meaning, but they are entirely unhelpful. 
They're good Christian people. And, and, and they're, they're trying to, they're, they're like Job's friends. And they're trying to help you through managing God's will for your life. But, but they are entirely unhelpful. And you know the coolest thing about this? Jesus is gracious. He doesn't, nowhere do you see him like berating Peter. He's just like, stop. Can we just please stop this? And guys, as we, we follow the Lord's will for our lives, there's going to be times when, when, when there are well-meaning people who come into our lives who are completely unhelpful. And we need to be gracious with them. They're not trying to hurt you. They're trying to be helpful. Doesn't mean you take their advice. Doesn't mean that, that, that you, you, you just you don't say anything. But you're gracious. You don't blow up at them. You don't kick them out of your life. You're gracious to them. And then on the flip side... The other people that are going to come into your life, they're people who, who are not well-meaning. Instead, they're ill-intentioned. And they're hateful. Like, like the chief priest's servant. You know, the, the chief priest's servant wasn't there to get Jesus' autograph. He was there to help arrest Jesus. And Peter does the, the Vincent Van Gogh thing to the guy slices the dude's ear off. And you know, natural tendency would be like, serves you well. Next time you look in the mirror, you remember you're the one who came to arrest the Son of God. But that's not what he does. Jesus instead looks at his enemy and he heals him. And he's gracious to them. I mean, those are the characteristics of people who are committed to doing the will of God. That's what it looks like. And certainly there are other ones, but these are the things that you can glean from this. And hopefully that will help us as we try to navigate this insane world. It tries to tell us all kinds of different things. It says, hey, go your own way, do your own thing. Here Jesus says, don't go your own way, don't do your own thing, do my thing, go my way. Follow what I do. And brothers and sisters, while it may be hard, it will always be the right thing. The journey of following Jesus is never easy. Never. But it's always the right place to be. Seek God's will. Ask him to reveal it to you. And then follow it with every fiber of your being, regardless of the cost. And God will get the glory and you will ultimately be where you're supposed to be.
Lord God, thank you for these folks. Thank you for this time that we have to, to worship together. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your son, Heavenly Father, who, uh, Lord, was fully God and fully human. Would you help us to become more like him? Father, help us to, to crucify, uh, Lord, our control and turn it over to you. And Lord, finally, we, uh, we wrap up this service, Heavenly Father, with a, with a, a song that is really a creed that, that testifies to, to what we believe. And so, Lord, uh, Lord, as we uh, proclaim uh, the truths about you and your word, Lord, might you be glorified. And it's through your son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Stand with us, please.